The Sermon from Christ Church Plano, Sunday, March 8th, 2020. One of the most uh, powerful stories I ever read is John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. I told Rachel this several years ago and tried to get her to read it when we were on summer vacation. Not one of my best book recommendations. Turns out, East of Eden is not a great summer beach read. Um, And to her credit, Rachel tried. She read for a while, and then she just said, you know, this is way too depressing, and she gave up. Uh, And it's true. East of Eden is very depressing. It's a story about these two pairs of brothers and the destructive enmity of their relationships with each other. And it's a story of deceit and betrayal and violence and grief. It's a story of the sins of fathers being visited on the lives of their sons. You know, beachy kind of stuff. (laughs) But it's not a story without hope. There's a scene in the book, close to the end, where the main character, Adam, is having a conversation with his friend, Lee. And they're talking about the meaning of a Bible verse, the meaning of Genesis 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 7. It's where God speaks to Cain and warns him about the anger that is building building inside him toward his brother Abel. And God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Lee tells Adam that the Hebrew word that God uses in Genesis here doesn't actually mean you must rule over sin. It means you may rule over it. And then he says, don't you see, Adam? The American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin, but the Hebrew word, the word temshel, thou mayest, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on a man. This is the ray of hope that breaks through the darkness of East of Eden. Because you see, if Lee is right, then this word, Timshel, means that the tragedy that has haunted Adam's family doesn't have to continue. Adam and his sons are not fated to perpetuate this history of envy and anger and violence that have brought such misery to their family. Sin may be crouching at the door, but Adam doesn't have to give in. He may rule over it. The choice is up to him. I remember the first time I read this passage in the book, and I just remember how hopeful it made me feel. Maybe it was just because the rest of the book was so horribly depressing. But Lee's words made an impact on me. Sin does not need to have the last word. You may rule over it. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? The only problem is it's wrong. And not just because Lee misunderstood the Hebrew grammar of Genesis, which he did. No, there's something more fundamentally wrong with this message. You see, no matter how encouraging it may sound, Lee's words to Adam at the end of the day offer nothing but a hollow and false hope, an empty promise. Because the truth is that the power to conquer sin does not, in fact, lie in our choice. Now, don't get me wrong, you and I, we can make better or worse choices. We can strive to be better neighbors, 
to raise well-behaved children, to be good citizens, to be loyal friends. And sometimes we can achieve real success with those goals. But sin is, as one theologian puts it, a vandalism of shalom, the destruction of life. And no matter how hard we may try, we cannot escape this vandalism on our lives. And until we recognize that fact, until we come to grips with the reality of our total inability to overcome the influence of sin and its effects, we will continue to misunderstand the gospel. And you can see this today in our gospel reading from John chapter 3. Here's a story of this guy Nicodemus who comes to see Jesus and have a conversation with him. And it's obvious that Nicodemus wants to follow Jesus, but he just cannot for the life of him understand what Jesus is saying. We don't know a lot about this man. John tells us his name in verse 1, Nicodemus. He tells us that he's a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. And, you know, many people these days tend to have bad opinions of Pharisees, like they were just a bunch of self-righteous, hypocritical people walking around in the first century condemning everybody. But really, Pharisees weren't all bad. In fact, in Jesus' day, Pharisees were the kind of most pious, most dutiful Jews around. And Nicodemus, it seems, is not only pious and dutiful, but a well-respected leader. Nor, I think this is worth pointing out, nor does Nicodemus come to Jesus with some kind of spirit of antagonism, you know, or, or that he's not really being sincere. A lot of people make a big deal about the fact that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night, as if that's proof that, you know, he's really, he's really duplicitous. Nicodemus, he's not being very truthful. He's scared to be seen with Jesus. But really, we don't know why he came at night. There could be a number of reasons. And there's nothing in the conversation that leads us to think that Nicodemus isn't genuinely sincere. So then here you've got this man, Nicodemus, righteous, upstanding man, comes to see Jesus. And notice how he begins the conversation. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's a really respectful greeting of Jesus. You know, much more respectful than a lot of people treated Jesus. And you would think that Jesus would sense that, that he would see how sincere Nicodemus is, that he would commend Nicodemus for his faith. But he doesn't. Instead, he responds by saying something that just seems completely unrelated. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What in the world does that mean? And how is that a response to what Nicodemus just said? It reminds me of this poster I saw recently trying to illustrate the meaning of a non sequitur, you know, something that doesn't follow from something else. So it was a picture of a little white dog, and under it there was a caption that read, I'm still not sure what a non sequitur is, but here's a puppy, and he's smiling. You know, this is kind of how you feel when you read this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus starts off by, you know, respectfully saying that Jesus is a teacher sent from God and, and he's obviously very admirable. And then Jesus just takes the conversation somewhere completely different and ignoring Nicodemus altogether. That's how it first seems anyway when you read it. But actually, Jesus' response is not a non sequitur. There's a reason that he says what he does. 
You see, although Nicodemus really does seem to want to follow Jesus, he also fundamentally misunderstands who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Nicodemus thinks of Jesus as a teacher, someone who's been sent with a message from God. And that makes a lot of sense for a Pharisee like Nicodemus because Pharisees of all people knew the consequences of not listening to the right teachers. When Pharisees thought about the history of their people, they thought of it as a story similar to the story of Adam's family in East of Eden, a tragic history of envy and deceit and violence and idolatry. It was a history and a story of rebellion and rule-breaking, a story of how the Jewish people had vandalized the shalom of God's blessing. But more importantly, Pharisees like Nicodemus also believed what Adam's friend Lee told him. They believed that sin didn't have to be the last word. This judgment didn't have to be the last word. That they could, that they may rule over the sin that had haunted them. All they needed to do was understand God's law and apply it rightly in every aspect of their lives. So that's why Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the first place because he thinks that Jesus is this great teacher. He's a rabbi sent to his people, sent to help them understand the law so that they may follow it and that they may rule over their sin and restore God's blessing. And of course, he's not wrong that Jesus is a teacher, but he's very wrong about how sin may be overcome. And so that's why Jesus responds the way he does. That's why he tells Nicodemus in response, you must be born again. Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand that he completely has misdiagnosed his own problem. That Nicodemus doesn't just need to be taught, he needs to be remade. That what's needed is not better education, but recreation. And at first, you know, Nicodemus still doesn't get it because he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? And you know, when you're reading this, it's kind of easy to get frustrated with Nicodemus at this point and just feel like you're just being obstinately literal-minded. It's obvious Jesus didn't mean that. But notice what he's asking here. Nicodemus doesn't reject what Jesus tells him. He just wants to know how to do it. How is this possible? How can this be done? How can a person get themselves born again? Four times in a very short amount of speaking, Nicodemus uses this verb can. Nicodemus is all about how can we do it? Okay, you've told me, you tell me how I can do it. You see, Nicodemus is still thinking on the level of possibility. He still believes what Steinbeck believes, that the power to overcome and rule over sin lies within the human spirit, in human choice, that you may rule over sin if you so choose. He just needs Jesus to tell him how. But Jesus refuses to go along with this line of thought. Instead of answering Nicodemus's question of how can a person get themselves born again, which Jesus doesn't answer, he instead redirects Nicodemus's attention away from that question, away from talking about the power of the human soul to talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says next. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind 
blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't see where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, this may seem like a rather strange response, but it helps if you keep the Old Testament in mind. There's this passage in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, where God takes the prophet and he takes him out to this valley filled with these old, dried up, dusty bones. And then he tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones and say that they will live. And then we're told a wind begins to flood into the valley from every direction and that this wind is the spirit of God. And when that wind comes upon those bones, they get up. And all of a sudden, flesh and sinews and skin begin to grow over them. And, and then you're looking out, and it's not a valley of dried up old bones, but a valley filled with living, breathing people. And then God tells Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And look, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I will look, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. That is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Not how he can get himself reborn, but that the Spirit of God the same spirit who breathed life into a pile of dust and made it into a living human being at creation, that that same spirit can bring new life even to the deadest of people. When Jesus says, you must be born again, what he is in effect telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you're a pile of dried up old bones and you need to be given new life. See, Nicodemus went to Jesus looking for a teacher but what he really needed wasn't a teacher. He needed somebody that can open up his grave and lift him out of it. And until he was ready to accept that fact, until Nicodemus recognized his complete inability to get himself into the kingdom, he would continue to misunderstand what Jesus had come to do. And you know, it's interesting. If you, if you read much about uh, descriptions of spiritual conversions, you'll often notice a pattern. Most conversions are preceded by a crisis of some sort. You know, think about St. Augustine, for instance. St. Augustine tells us about his conversion in the Confessions. And it might feel like it's, this is, you know, this is just sort of the long culmination of a decades-long search for philosophical truth and happiness. But Augustine also says that there is this moment, this day in a garden where things change decisively for him, where his life is changed. And what inspires that moment is a crisis. It was a crisis of self-realization. It was Augustine finally coming face to face with his own addiction to success and pleasure, and finally recognizing that he had no power to free himself from those chains. He himself describes this crisis. He says, the day had dawned when I was stripped naked in my own eyes, and I was conscious of being held prisoner. And it was only then, at the end of his rope, only then 
when he recognized his utter helplessness, only then did Augustine finally convert to Christ. And his story is just one example of many like it. Recently, I met a couple who told me about a momentous experience of redemption and their own lives. And it was such a compelling and powerful story that I asked them, hey, do you mind if I use this in a sermon sometime? And they said that they'd be glad for me to tell it. And like St. Augustine, their story also revolves around a crisis. It revolves around a time when after 25 years of marriage, she had two affairs, and he grew to hate her, and he wanted a divorce. And for years, both of them had been active in church, trying to raise Christian children, trying to live a good Christian life, and they'd weathered hard times before. But in that moment, the life that they had built together for 25 years came crashing down. And it was just then that they realized how much sin had vandalized their lives and that they really didn't have power to rule over it this time. And it was in that time of crisis, in that moment of desperation, that the Spirit of God met them and lifted their dead and dried up marriage out of its grave. And this isn't a coincidence. Crisis often precedes conversion because it seems like it's only in moments of crisis that we realize just how wrong Steinbeck really is. That we can't, in fact, rule over the sin that threatens to overwhelm us. That better education and stronger effort aren't enough. That we're actually a pile of dried up old bones who need to be given new life. And that's one of the benefits of Lent, you know. Lent is a time for self-examination. Lent is a time to recognize your weakness and sin. And Lent is also a time for repentance, a time when we're called to turn away from the idols on which we have placed our hope. Idols like money and education and power. That's what we're looking at in our Lenten devotional this year. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but they can all become idols. They can all become counterfeit gods when we put our hope in them, when they become the things that we use to try to rule over the vandalism of sin and bring peace and happiness to our lives. And that's one reason why Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not just that the, the, the idol of money, money and possessions. It's not just that money and possessions compete for the love that we owe to God. It's that the more money you have, the more you tend to use money to control the world around you. And the more money you have, the more susceptible you are to believe this idea that you really can, that you may rule over whatever problem comes your way. But Lent is a time to repent of our idols and to remind ourselves that the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be given new life by the Spirit. And one of the real practical ways to do this is to do what Martin Luther often instructed Christians to do. Remember your baptism. You know, that's why some of us, you'll see, dip our finger into the baptismal font when we come in and cross ourselves as we come into worship. It's because we're remembering our baptism. And that might seem like a rather odd thing to do to you if you've never done it. But if you look at our passage this morning, you'll notice that in verse 6, Jesus actually tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
And commentators have argued about exactly what Jesus means here when he talks about being born of water and the Spirit. But most Christians have read this as a reference to baptism, which makes sense because the New Testament often associates baptism with the Spirit's work of giving us new life. So when you remember your baptism, what you're remembering is that no idol can save you, neither money nor power nor education, nor success, nor the strength of your own will, that only the Spirit of God can give you new life, that you must be born again. So remember that this week as you continue your Lenten practices of fasting and self-examination. And remember that as you begin to recognize idols in your own life or as you feel overwhelmed in a time of crisis. And finally, remember what we are told on Ash Wednesday, that God desires not the death of sinners, but that they, may turn, that they should turn from their wickedness and live. For God so loved the world, John tells us, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ Church Plano exists to invite ordinary people to know Jesus Christ and to become like Him for the sake of the world. Visit ChristChurchPlano.org.